Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, you might remember this guy, his nickname was Sparkles and he played for the Cronulla Sharks, also the New South Wales Blues and was in the Kangaroos playing for Australia in Rugby League. Mark McGaw joins me in the Beach Shack. He's also known as Hammer off the TV show Gladiator and you might also remember the Lowe's ads where he did the men's wear commercials back with Fatty Vorton, Ciro and Darrell Broman, the big man. Now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Mark Sparkles McGaw. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a great pleasure. He's a guy that uh, was a legend back in uh, the day playing uh, rugby league. I've met him a few times recently when we are uh, doing some car racing. So welcome, Mark McGaw. How are you, mate? How did the car racing go, Hoppo? How'd you go? <laughs> it was going all right, mate. Just uh, I think we were uh, neck and neck in the end, but it was a handicap, oh, so you gave, me, you gave me a little bit of a start. I couldn't even see your revision mirror. Mate, uh well, uh, paint the picture. You were born in Cronulla and a local junior. So what was it like growing up over there in the uh, Shire? Actually, I was born in North Sydney. Right. But at the age of six months, my parents moved to a place called Engadine, which back then was just a new subdivision, So, which is only 15 minutes out of Cronulla. And so I played all my junior league in, in, in Engadine. And uh, I remember, so if I give myself a bit of a rap, when I was a five-year-old, I was playing in the under sixes in my first year and got best back. And then um, the next three years, I got best and fairest. And then that was the last trophy I got, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so was there a passion back then for football? Or was there other sports you were playing? And No, I, 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 there wasn't a sport I wasn't playing. I was playing cricket on the Saturday, soccer and rugby league on the Sunday, bas- basketball and volleyball at school, rugby league at school. And I played a little bit of rugby union. But the rugby union just um, was sort of came later in life. So it wasn't something I... I really uh, had much uh, look at, but um, I think I played it in, in high school and I think it was too too much running, so <laughs> went back to rugby league. And so then you continued rugby league through teenage years and did you make the rep sides there and the juniors to, to so, give you a bit of... So the, I'm just trying to think from back then, the, the first rep side I think back then was about 14s or 15s. So at the age of uh, so six, seven, eight, nine. So at the age of about ten or eleven, I actually went over to soccer. So about fourteen, I had coach ring me and said, "Would you like to come back and play football?" So I went back, played, but I was about six, seven inches shorter than everyone else. So I wasn't growing at that age. Anyway, they still put me uh, a trial in the rep game, and I uh, got smashed. So I never really made any rep teams there. Then I got into uh, the SG ball. I didn't make that. Back then, I think it was the under-16s, I think the SG ball was. I'm not quite sure. 
And um, then the President Avenue, and I think I got number 20. So I started to grow at the age of 17. I took off and I ended up being pretty tall and started to develop again. And so at the age of 17, I, I think I made the President or 18 or whatever it was, the President's Cup side, and was number 20. So I really never played. To answer your question, I really never made any rep teams, even though I was part of a, the President's Cup. I never really made any rep teams. So I trialled and I was training with the SG Boar for a little bit, but I never made the 20. And then when did it come about then that you did get picked because you eventually went into first grade for Cronulla? I mean, no one knows this because no one's ever asked it, but we had a, back then, Cronulla area was a massive junior base. The junior base has shrunk. Anyone who, who watches football and especially the Sharks, they would have seen Barry Russell, who was a year younger than me. There was Jonathan Docking, who was in the 1988 uh, minor premier winning, uh, winning side. Barry Russell, Michael Porter was my age, who's in my team. He went to grade at the age of 17, uh, round about 17, 18. Barry Russell was... Uh, my, uh, then you had Glenn Steele and, and Johnny O'Connor and Andrew Eddinghausen. And, um, you had... Uh, you had 11 of the, in 1988, you had 11 of the local juniors inside. Um, but anyway, at 17, they all got picked, and I was, and I was just playing for Engadine, under-17s or whatever it was. I didn't get picked. So, but, you know, it's funny, I, I wasn't even thinking about it. I was just playing rugby league and, you know, soccer or whatever I was doing. And um, anyway, I got a phone call from a, a promotion, a, a manager or promotion guy back then from Illawarra. And he said to me, Mark, this is, um, can't even remember his name now. I do a lot of players in, in Illawarra and they're looking to contract you for under-23s, but you'll probably play reserve rate. And I went, no, you, you're G up, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, because I didn't have any confidence in myself back then. I don't think anyone does. You don't even think about it. Oh, I'm confident. You just live life as your kid, you know. Anyway, so Michael Porter... Uh, who was playing great at the time, who just made it. His father was the CEO of the club or the chairman of the club, I'm not quite sure, Monty Porter, who played in the first Sharks team in 1967. And I rang Monty and I said, mate, I've just had this phone call from Illawarra. Should I accept the contract and go down and play? He said, no, 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 no. He said, we've got a trial on Sun Saturday. Come down to the Cronulla Sharks trial before you do anything. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. If, if, I, was, if, I, if I knew what I knew now back then, I would have said, you know, jam it. Because if you yeah. don't have the confidence in me, I should have went to Illawarra. So I should have went down there and played because they had the confidence in me to give me a contract straight away. But back then, loyalty was everything. You just wanted to play with your mates, you know, and all my mates were there. Half the side was Engadine Dragons and the local juniors. So I went down in the first trial, and I won't say because it's, politically incorrect to say what we called the first trial, but it was a bunch <laughs> of losers in the first trial and then the second lot of losers in the second trial and the third lot of losers in the second. So I went through each trial uh, and did pretty well and then got right to the last trial, which was um, technically it was a, a reserve grade trial, but all the first graders were in it. So that year, uh, Gavin Miller, Dane Sorensen, I think it was Hardy, all these guys who were playing for Cronulla the year before in 83 went to Eastern Suburbs because Cronulla had half pay cuts. So all the Cronulla players that weren't paid their money went, left the club and most, a lot of them went to East. So the trial was against East. So the, the trial happened and I'm sitting on the bench and 
we scored. So Kurt Sorensen scored. Now Kurt actually ended up going to England after that uh, and didn't play that year. But Kurt Sorensen scored uh, with about a minute to go. So they're all walking back to kick off with about 30 seconds to go and they said, they run down, they said, Mark, you're on. Fullback. <laughs> well, what? <laughs> like, I've never played great in my life, you know? Like, here's these, you know, 100 kilo blokes running around like mad dogs and they sit, and I'm, I look like a pencil. I was only was about 80, 76 kilos or something. Anyway, um, so they put me back at fullback, 30 seconds to go with a kickoff. So they're going to kick it to me because I'm under the post, right? So they've kicked off and I'm just my world, you know, my worst nightmare is coming and the ball landed sh- straight over the black dot into my dukes and where could I go? 10 seconds, 15 seconds to go. What am I going to do? The whole side's coming down. So I just thought, well, I'll run straight up. And Dane Sorensen was there, and I put my hand on his chest and waiting for him to grab me and just tackle me. And then we're going to walk off, right? But when I put my hand on his chest, he, he planted his feet uh, side by side. So he didn't actually drive forward. So I bounced off him and went backwards. Uh, so fear kicked in after that because I've still got the ball and I'm running around. So I ran to the left and just ran sideways. Anyway, so someone come at me and I ran sideways. You know, you can't tackle him. When you run it sideways, you don't really tackle someone because you just let him run sideways. So I'm running sideways and the next guy came at me. I sort of touched him, pushed away. Then I've got to the sideline. So I can't go anywhere else. So I had to turn and go straight. Well, next thing I know, there's no one in front of me. So I turned straight and gone up the sideline. About 40 metres, 50 metres later, I only had the fullback to beat. <laughs> so I said, what do I do here? So he, he sort of kept away from me and let, let me make the decision. So I either had to step in, but if I stepped in, he was about 10 metres in. I would have stepped into him, so I just took off down the sideline. I got past him, but they put the flag up and said I put my foot on the white line. So it just shows you that it only takes you 30. I got graded after that <laughs> just from a 30-second stint. So it just shows you that it only takes, you know, 30 seconds, 20 seconds for you to impress to, to achieve your goals. And, you know, this was all 30 seconds at the end of the game. It wasn't the beginning of the game. It wasn't 80 minutes of the game. It was just the last 30 seconds. I had an opportunity. I didn't expect it to work out the way it did. But when I had the ball in the Duke, after I pushed away from Dane Sorensen, I just thought, well, I might as well give this a shot. So took off and the rest is history. I, I played for Australia, State of Origin, did all those things that, that every boy dreams of. My first day of training, I was supposed to be on a cruise I, me and a mate of I booked a cruise to go away for 10 days. I get seasick, so I don't even know why I did that. But So I had to cancel because I walked up to my coach, uh, Kevin, Kevin Hagen, who's now passed. And Kevin was the one, apparently, the story goes, is that um, Terry Fernley was the coach. And um, so he's up there in the coaching and he, he's turned around to his coaching staff and said, this is what I've heard from different people that are in the room. So, well... Well, there's a minute to go. Is there anyone we can throw on to have a look at, you know? And um, Kevin Hagen said there's a young fullback from Engadine that, that can run a bit. So um, Kevin was the one that put me in and threw me in under the bus, which at the end of the day, <laughs> I got graded, had to cancel my 10-day cruise ship because I went to Kevin and I said, mate, I've got a cruise. I've booked a cruise. And he said, what's more important to you, the cruise or the rugby league? And then he walked away. <laughs> so what do you do? And then uh, from there, when, when was your um, – did that give you belief, though, then that you actually had the talent to become a first-grade footballer? You know, people ask those questions, but, uh, but 
that's like me saying, have you got the belief? Like, there's a difference between belief and talent. I guess people may mix it up a little bit because if you've got the talent, that's a false sense of belief in some respects. I know people have got no talent that have the belief to do anything. I didn't really, I don't think I was smart enough to understand the difference between having the belief in myself. All as I knew was that I got graded and I was excited. And being a young kid, you didn't care about your body, you know what I mean? You didn't care about, you know, injuries. And uh, then after the first game of uh, the under-23s, I, I think I got man of the match. And then I played reserve grade, got man of the match. I think I played another reserve grade, got man of the match. That's when you started to realise, hang on, this reserve grade in, in under-23s, I can do this because you've done it. Whether you had the belief or the confidence in the first place, I, I can't answer that. I guess you do have to have that to actually run out on the field. And, but you also need the courage to be able to fail. I could have ran out in reserve grade and been hammered and said, I don't want to do this. Or I could have been hammered and got up and said, let's go again, let's go again. But I was, I was fortunate my first five games because I played, I sort of played the game pretty flexible, if that means, like I'd get hit, I'd, I wouldn't take anyone out, I'd sort of bounce off and get up and, and as I got older and bigger and stronger, I started hitting harder and getting more injuries instead of bouncing off. And then on about the fifth or sixth game, Jonathan Docking got injured and they put me at fullback in first grade. And it was a night game. And I don't know if anyone remembers, but many, many years ago, Belmore Oval was burnt down and, uh, sorry, Parramatta Oval was, I think, was all burnt down and revamped before this last revamp. So I played against Can uh, Parramatta at Belmore. Night game. Now you can imagine... Parramatta, they, they just won a couple of comps. So the back line was Sterling, Kenny, Zip Zip, Cronin, Taylor at the back. I mean, that's uh, Eric Growth. So you're looking at an international back line and I'm just sitting here and that was my first game. <laughs> so I wasn't put into third grade or reserve grade or first grade in, in the sweetheart deal. I was put in, 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 you know, I was thrown in the deep end. And... Um, I got Ricky the Rookie of the Week that week against Parramatta at fullback. So Sterlo said, oh, we'll give this guy a serve. So Sterlo put the bomb up about four or five times, naturally, yeah. And I caught every one of them and made a good few good runs, a few good tackles and got Rookie of the Week. So I suppose your belief in yourself without even thinking about it starts to become and falls over into your confidence but I've never really been someone like confidence. You know, the, the thing about rugby league or any sport, I think, is, is that you can uh, internally ruin your own confidence. You can, your negative thoughts or whatever. I never had any of those. I just thought, oh, well, you know, I'm never going to let the bloke in front of me run around me. You know, or the, or the, or the bloke in front of me is never going to tackle me. That, that was my mindset. And, you know, if someone did a good tackle, you know, pat them on the back. That gave me confidence to give someone else a, you know, a pat in the back. Even the opposition said, man, that was a great tackle. But you won't get me next time. So that's the sort of attitude I've had and I have it today. Mate, uh, then you did move into the centres and it's renowned. A lot of people uh, back in the day that listened, there's, there's the combination of you and Andrew Eddinghouse in the centres that was became a, a renowned partnership. How was that? Well... I'm a big believer of, of, I don't know whether you call it chemistry or what do you, whether it's um, 
I think it's personalities, the way they play, have to connect. You have to, like, how many times have you heard the saying, Manly Moringa comes up many years when I was in, you know, you've got a team of champions, but not a champion team. Well, what does that mean? It means that you've got a bunch of 13 blokes that aren't working well together. Now, that could be many things. That could be just, you know, one person's a left footer and runs, likes to run left and another boat likes to run right or someone can't pass left or whatever the case may be. You, and that's where you find teams that, like in 1988, we, didn't, we had only a couple of internationals, me, E.T. and Gavin Miller but, and Dan Staines, but we had basically good first graders, but we all worked well together. Like Michael Speechley could tackle like you wouldn't believe. They call him grass cutter. But Michael Speechley wasn't a, a Mortimer who could just make something out of nothing, but he could throw a good ball and give me plenty of good service. And then you had Barry Russell that could run like the wind, so he complimented Gavin Miller. So Gavin Miller was a ball player. Barry was a good runner with speech. So you had that compliment. Uh, and that's why that, you know, Canterbury, I think, worked so well in the, in the 80s because they had two big front rowers, two, two hard-hitting second rowers and a great ball runner, Lock. So you had a good combination there. So I think the combination that I had with ET didn't come initially because ET was already playing grade when I went in there, and then I, I, I was put on the wing. ET was on the one wing. He was at fullback at some stage. He went on the wing. I was, and then, and then we're sitting down in the room on a Tuesday night after a game, and and uh, the late Jack Gibson turned around and said, "We're going to we're going to make a few changes." <laughs> How he says it, and he said, "I think." Um, Mr. McGraw, I'm Steadinghausen, you probably should be in the centres. <laughs> and I'm looking at him and going, what? <laughs> anyway, so um, the next game, ET and I in the centres, I don't know what the year that was. It could have been 85, 86, 85, 86, I'm not sure. But my, my game was, was hitting the line and keeping my arms free and offloading. And ET's game was hitting the gap. And, and, and so that, that worked. You know, if they're, you know, and we were playing two centres together back then. We weren't playing centre aside, which is how I like to play the game. If I was a coach now, I'd have centres joining centres, you know, in, in somewhere in a set of six and an attacking set of six. I'd have the two centres together. You, you know, I watched that State of Origin last year and they had the second row in the centres, Kedwell. Man, I'd love to play against a second row. Not, not because they haven't got the talent, but they're a lot bigger than you. They're, they're harder to start, you know, they're, they're inertia to get off the mark. So you can, you can step and you can get your arms, you can get to the side of them and all that type of thing. The same, the, the, I, I, I personally think centres is the hardest position to play. Not because of toughness or anything like that, but you're always one-on-one. -on -one. And you know as well as I do that when it's one-on-one, -on -one, the guy with the ball always has the advantage because he has the element of surprise whether he's going to go left or right. So you're always reacting as a defender. So that's why, you know, to play a centre that, you know, I wasn't the fastest centre, so I had to sort of think before, what's he going to do? You know, if I was up, up against the likes of, you know, Kenny or someone like that who was quicker than me, then I've got to, you know, I always had a, a little bit of a system. I always used to sit on, their, on the inside of their shoulder. So if they were going to step back in, they'd step back into me. If they were going to step outside, I'd, I, I could do enough to have them push sideways for the winger and stuff like that. So all little things that they don't teach now, you know. So when ET and I got together, we, we had you know, a decade, and it was great. Played State of Origin, played for Australia. ET always, for some reason, in, in, the, in the representative games, ended at the wing or, or, you know, or fullback or whatever, and I was always in the centre. So I had 
I mean, you have a look at the partners that I had over the years. I had Michael O'Connor uh, playing for Australia. I had Meninga. And we had um, we had uh, Michael O'Connor. I mean, you look look at the look at the centres that were going around back then. You had you know, Shearer. You had O'Connor. You had Johnson from St George. You had Curry, who was coming through. Um, you had Mick Beatty that was fighting for a state of origin spot. You had Johnsy. You had, I, I worked it out, you had 13 in players that had played international at that time in the centres. Kenny, Zip Zip, you had the Broncos pairing. Um, so the way I worked it out is that one of the most proud moments is to, to be selected in the Australian team with 13 other international centres. You, you had Daly. So you had, you had 13, even more, but you had 13 international centres running around. So to be selected in the Australian team at that point was a very proud moment because you, you, at that time you were playing well enough to be selected as the top. And then went on the 1990 Kangaroo Tour. Mate, it, it was an amazing era. And as you said, that, you know, pretty much any of those players were playing out of position and they could have all played centre and then you got the, the gig in, in the centre. and. State of Origin, it's known as the toughest game and fastest game um, that you can play. What, what was that like? Well, I remember, um, and, and here's another one, Peter Jackson, the late Peter Jackson, but I remember my first game in 1987. And, um, oh, Gene Miles, there's another centre. All right, so what have I named? I rattled off a dozen already there. So I remember that they kicked off and the ball went out the back line in, the, in our 20. So the forward took it up and I think Peter Sterling threw it out to Kenny or someone and, and, and threw it to me and like, where am I going? I'm going nowhere. I'm in our 25 and they just come up and Gene Miles just decided to just give my nose a bit of a serve. <laughs> that was the first 30 seconds of the game. And I'm down and my head's spinning and I think I was more stupid to think that, that I was concussed. I was just more like, oh, well, is that how it's going to be? You know what I mean? Like that's the, that, that, that was my attitude. It wasn't like, oh, shit, I've just been hitting the nose. My nose is... I guess broken or whatever it is, and I, oh, you know, I've got to get off here. I just thought to myself, is that how it's going to be? You know, young and stupid. Anyway, so the first 30 seconds, I was knocked down and didn't get knocked out or anything, but I got knocked down and blood everywhere. And the last 30 seconds, I won the, I scored the try to win the game. So <laughs> up yours. <laughs> I remember that game. Yeah, great. It was a great game. It was great. You was back then. And as you said, some of the players, do you think, Back then was was tough, and, and I mean, obviously they've changed the rules to to today. But do you think there's a, a lot of difference? I mean, the speed these days, but that's only because of the the rule changes. Do you think? Can you compare? You can't really compare eras. No, you can't. You can't compare because it's like it's like grabbing no grabbing your state of origin set stayed side from last year, and putting him in the same set of rules and giving him a few as well as as our rules and getting them to play, you know, for a couple of years under those rules, they're all tough footballers. They'd handle it, you know. It's not until you get into that situation who rises to the top and who doesn't, you know. Uh, one, thing, one thing that I do feel that when you go into state of... So, when you get, so back then, city origin was like a state of origin. I mean, in 1987, when I played my first rep team, was, a, was city origin. Every player in that side, except two or three in the two sides, played state of origin. So you had, you had Les Davison, you had Paul Dunn, Pat Jarvis is one of the hardest men I've ever been hit by. Pat Jarvis, like Tunksy, Terry Lamb, Kenny, Connor, 
you had you know, Kelly for the countryside, Davison, Boyle. You know, you had Gary Jack at fullback. So you're looking at two sides, two state of origin sides fighting it out to play the first state of origin. And that's when I got selected. So that, that, that was a proud moment in itself. But so you take that side, that state of origin side, and put it into this era now, and you take the era now and put it back then. I think after a couple of, you know, a year of training and playing under those rules, I think the cream would just rise to the crop. And I think the same players would do the same. You know, you, Wayne Pearce was extraordinary. I, I went back and for the first time about a year ago and watched a couple of City Origin, State of Origin games. And you never notice Wayne Pearce on the field, but when you go and watch him, he's busting lines, he's smacking bikes, he's, he's just, you know, now he's not a super fast, you know, big, tall second row like they are now. But you put Wayne Pearce in there now, it rise to the top, not a problem. You know, because I think it's just, it's, it's, it's an all-round thing. You know, it's a talent all-round, but Wayne Pearce just works his butt off, and everyone knows that. Um, and he just, you know, he was always there. You always depended on him. So, oh, I think the rule changes just, just make the game different. Doesn't, just doesn't change the potential of the, of the player. Is there someone that you, that you played with that you think don't is exceptional? You know, when, you, when you're 17 and you look at a player like you know, someone like I don't know, Steve Rogers or someone, you go, God, he's exceptional. But when you're playing with someone, someone to you know, score a try in the last minute, or, it's not what you look at. You're looking at the bloke beside you. The, 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 you know, there's 10 minutes to go. And what do you do? You're busted, you're tired, you can't get up. And then you turn around and you see someone like David Hatch that's on his 50th tackle getting up and he's, and he's chasing the kick and he's first down there. I mean, who do you want to go to war with? A bloke like that? Or someone who can, you know, who doesn't, doesn't do much and then scores a try in the last 30 seconds to win you the game? Well, did he win you the game or did the bloke that done 50 tackles, you know, through the game win you the game? So I think it's a combination, as, again, as I said, it's a combination how teams work well together. I don't like the word chemistry. It's more like how personalities and talent work well together. But... You know, I think you need, you know, a cross-section of the bloke that can score the try or the chip and chase or whatever, and the bloke that does 50 tackles all come together. To, to, that's what a team event's all about. And you rely on each other to do your job. But I've just always had a lot of respects, that, you know, like David Hatch and Pat Jarvis. And, you know, I, I go to go to tackle. And I remember, I'll give you a perfect example. I tackled the bloke on the, on the sideline and I was out of position. So I had to run right across to the other side of the, the field to uh, get in position and they passed the ball out the back line. So I was already there because I had to be there. And uh, so I sorted on a tackle. Next thing I know, we're on the other side of the sideline. I, I got this whack in my back and I turn around, it's David Hatch. He's tackling me and the other bloke over to the sideline. So he's ran 50 metres across. But, he did, but if he didn't do that, you, would, you wouldn't know. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be a tick against his name or a cross against his name because his positional play didn't need him to be there, but he did that because he, you know, he did that extra yards. And they're, they're, they're the, if I was a coach, they're, they're the players that I'd be looking for, the guy that'll get off the ground. He'll do a tackle or he'll pass the ball, get tackled, get off the ground and try and back up again. And, you know, that David Hatch was, was one of those, an unsung hero. But there's quite a few players like that. Mate, on coaching, was that anything you, you aspired to do as, as to be a coach? Look, I, if I was asked to be an assistant coach for that, I'd do it tomorrow. I've sort of, I've been in the education game and it's a fine line, but I think it's all the same, coaching, mentoring, 
teaching, whatever you want to call it. I've been doing it for 30 years in my business. So I do cert, I do fitness, um, coaching. Over the years, I've coached kids just one-on-one and stuff like that. So all the coaches that I've had and I can draw from, you're looking at um, some magnificent coaches. So, you know, my first coach was, was Terry Fernley. My second coach was Jack Gibson. Third coach was Alan Fitzgibbon. I had Tim Sheens in State of Origin. I had uh, Bozo Fulton in Australia. I had uh, Ron Willey in State of Origin. So th- th- there's a great line of stuff that I've written down over the years and put together. But I think the most successful coaches are the ones that helped you off the field the more th- than on the field. Because technically, I don't ever recall a coach teaching me how to tackle. <laughs> you know, a coach never said, put your head here or do that. You, you, you're expected at that level to be already doing that. And the coaches that, that are in the, you know, the 17s and 16s or 15s, they're the ones that should be teaching all that basic stuff. So if you don't know it by the time you get to the top, then you're going to struggle a bit. And you, you, you find that you see a lot of players in first grade now, you're getting knocked out. Now, I, I know the position changes, you know, they put your head there. But, you know, I don't, I think just the basics uh, uh, dropped away a lot. And I think, you know, I think a lot of the basics have to be brought back into the juniors. Mate, everyone's got a nickname in football. How did you get the nickname Sparkles? Oh, that's an easy one. I was an electrician by trade, mate. So I think one of my my first girlfriend was about 17 and she brought to school back years and years ago, and this didn't help, but years and years ago, she, um, Grace Brothers and all, they had all these different sorts of sales and there was a Sparkle City sale and she stole the sign from Grace Brothers and cut off the city sale and handed the, the Sparkle sign to me at lunchtime in front of all my mates. And they went, oh, Sparkle, sir. So, you know, um, so the more I fought it, the more it stuck. So if you ever want to get rid of a nickname, just accept it. Don't fight it. So that's how it stuck. So I, I, tell, I tell everyone that I'm an electrician by trade, which I am, and, and sparky sparkles, but that's not really what happened. <laughs> how was it when you, you're going into retirement? A lot of people struggle you know, from being elite sportsmen and then suddenly it's all over and you've got to move on into the rest of your life. Absolutely. I've seen firsthand rugby league footballers a mess. I was in the Gladiators, 1995 I was on that TV show, and... So all the, all the contestants that were in that show were either personal trainers, security guards, or whatever. So here they've gone into the public eye. They've, they, they're now in their own, and this is rugby league as well, you're now a next level up. Now when that finishes, what it, what's the next step up from there? There's no next step up unless you can get a hosting job or you can get some sort of TV to keep your name out there and for you to be you know, still recognised. So I, I ask this question, has the people that have gone into media that are still in public eye, do they have the mental stress or mental anxiety or whatever as much as the people that all of a sudden just finish and retire and they wake up one day and there's no one patting them on the back, you know, I'm right into mental fitness. I don't call it uh, mental health, I call it mental fitness because you, you need to go out and you need to train your mental when I retired from footy, I never thought about media or anything. And I had a mate of mine said, Mark, you're crazy. You should have, you should have done this, you should have done that. And, and I 
said, oh, yeah, okay, and that was 10, 15 years later, but it's too late. You're, you know, you're way out of it by that stage. But I moved straight into a business, um, an education business, which I love, right? So it's, it's, not, it's fitness, Cert 3, Cert 4 and Diploma of Fitness, teach people how to become personal trainers. But I was doing lectures, I was getting in front of trainers and teaching them and, and, and disseminating information that, and doing something I love. But after you do that and you train and you teach and you do all that, all of a sudden, about 15 years later, it's like, maybe that's, this is a bit of a, an apprenticeship to actually coach. I don't know if you remember, but many years ago, every second coach was an ex-school teacher or, or, or a school teacher. So I don't, I don't, if I was asked to be an assistant backs coach or something like that and do you know, one or two days a week, that'd be beautiful. But, but as you know, the nepotism and, and you know, the mates club, I think, is still around. So I've never really forced my hand to try and do that, you know. Mate, uh, you also did a few commercials, which I laughed at back in the day. Tell us a bit about the Lowe's commercials, mate. They were quite funny. I'm not sure how it all started, actually. So I was asked to do a, a Lowe's commercial, and, and I won't name the manager at the time, but I never really had a manager. But I asked but one of the footballers, I asked him, to give me his number so I could ring his manager and just say, what do you think? Because I got on well with that manager. And, oh, no, you're going to ruin your reputation. Don't do that, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and I said, so I said to him, well, it's not like people are knocking me door down to give me, you know, seven or eight years later, I was still doing it. You know what I mean? And, you know, it wasn't huge money or anything, but it was a break from footy. It was Calvin Klein commercials. So I did it. And it was a bit of fun. You know, rugby league is, is uh, a time gear and, and, you know, and all that. So I th- thought it worked well. <laughs> and, I, and I thought that was a bit strange because it, it was still one of the biggest or the highest profile sports in the country like it is now. Yet, yet you never see any ath- rugby league footballers doing a lot of commercials. How many commercials do you see athletes do in general? Just a handful? Like, you know, the tennis star, she, you know, she's won Wimbledon when she gets a commercial. But... I'd rather look. I'd rather see someone who's successful in their chosen career. I'd rather buy from them than, than someone just who's an actor who says, "Oh, you know, buy this shampoo." But if Brett Kenny said to me, "Buy the shampoo," I'd buy it. <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean. Now they got women playing the game. Well, better still, mate. Also. You're saying that in the early 2000s, I mean, everyone, and that's a part of this podcast, is everyone goes through the good times and they go through the bad times. And there was a period you had some dark times in your life. Yeah, I, um, one of the things that, that, that I, that's not, you, you really probably can't teach it, but you, you, you trust the wrong people. And these people that, and I won't go into the specifics, but, you trust certain people and, they, and they, they wheeze their way into your life and they do all the right things and they say all the right things and no one ever teaches you how to identify if they're telling the truth or not. You know, you can't. You gotta, I mean, if you spend your whole life not trusting anyone, it's a pretty sad life. And look, how many footballers I know, every footballer I know has been ripped off, right? For one, way, one reason or another, whether they put money into a construction or they put money into a business or the, the, the business partners ripped them off or the construction fell over or whatever the case may be, you hear it all the time. I mean, you hear Boris Becker, I saw, I don't know if it's true, he's broke. Well, why would he be broke? He's won millions. But, you know, you can't, sometimes you can blame the person, the, the player or the sports person, or, but, you know, I've, you know, I, know I know a really high-profile person that, that the accountant ripped them off. 
Well, aren't you supposed to give your accountant all your details and do everything? That's how they do your work. So sometimes you just can't avoid it, but you've just got to try and lessen the risk. Anyway, that happened to me. So I had, a, I had someone come into the business, said they could do this and that, the other thing. They spent two years you know, helping me, promoting, getting the business working, and then all of a sudden, my bank accounts were drained. So how that happened, I, I don't know, because you know, they didn't have any authorization for accounts or anything. So, but see, I never, I never bothered with, you know, and, and there was a defamation court case back in 2003 over the whole thing, because Channel 7, um, you know, they put, put it on air and everything they said was a lie. And we proved it. We won the defamation case. But the only thing that Channel 7 had to do was basically just pay out some money, which was nothing to them. But I don't have anything against Channel 7 because they, 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 they were told by a certain person which they thought was facts and they put it on air. The next thing I know, I'm, the next five, six years of my life, you know, I, I'm sitting at home most of the time just trying to get through this, these dark times. So, you know, but just to anyone listening about that, those dark times, they, people say, oh, there's always a light at the very end of that dark time. You, you, if you look into the darkness, you see that there's a light. There's always, it doesn't matter how small it is, because time will bring you out of it. Time will bring you out of it, no matter what it is, it'll bring you out of it. So if you have any decisions that, that, that are dark decisions, Look at the other decision, the, the, right, the light decision. If that's a dark decision, look at the light decision and go, okay, well, I'm just going to hang on here and maybe I'll go and talk to someone. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm right into that. You know, if anyone wants to chat to me or come and uh, sit and have a, have a word or a beer and just to say, how are you going? And, you know, how's everything? Mate? Quite open to it because, you know, every footballer has to, every, not every footballer, people in general, even people who are working for big companies and they get let go. You know, it's not just rugby league. It's it's it's, a, it's an attitude across the ball in all areas. And I think you're 100 percent right. With it's and the younger generation now are, are finding it really hard to, um, you know, find their way through life. And and uh, you know, it's for us looking back and the and the mistakes we've made and the failures and all that that we do. Everybody does throughout their life, and everyone then has success as well. It does make it um, make it very hard for people in this day and age. Well, I. I know I'm chopping and changing here, but you hear, you hear things and all that. And there was a little, someone said, uh, I don't know whether it was a psychologist or a, I don't even know if it was at a movie, could have even been in a movie. But there's no right or wrong. There's no, uh, you know, if you look, if you're in space and you look down on the earth, all the decisions that are made, the, the universe and, and, and it doesn't say whether they're right or wrong. They're just a decision. So that's the way I look at it. So... So, okay, well, I'm going to make a decision here, but make it so the outcome is positive because the universe is not looking at it as a, oh, that's a bad decision, I'm going to make it bad for him. Or the, the universe only gives back to what you really are trying to, you know, mentally and physically put out there. So if you are going through bad times, start changing your thought process just to start with so when you wake up in the morning just say all right have four or five things that you have on the counter that you say all right and you, first, and you say that a few times and then you say it and create a, a, a habit 
And then when you walk into the fridge, there's a piece of fruit or there's a piece of chocolate. Make a good, make a correct decision. Make a good decision. You know, I'm going to park the car at the shopping centre. Park it 500 metres away and walk to the shopping centre. You know, just little things that increase your physical and mental well-being. And it's mate, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah. been doing it for years. Mate, where could uh, if people want to do courses, how how do they uh, they go online and, and get in contact that way? Okay, so I suppose the easiest way is just to look up McGaw Institute, M C G A W Institute, or double M I double S Mark McGaw Institute of Sports Science. Look up double M I double S and put Institute at the end of it, and you'll see my my website come up, and you can just catch me through there. We're doing really good prices at the moment because you know just getting out of COVID and. People don't have a lot of money, so you'll be surprised at the price, Hoppo. <laughs> Might join up myself. Absolutely. <laughs> you got to have time well, to do it, though. Yeah, plenty on, plenty on. Well, mate, Sparkles, it's been fantastic, mate. It's unreal having you on the uh, the podcast. I think we've got to, we'll have to get back down to Pheasantwood Racetrack and duke it out again. Well, you better go and do some practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit, I drive a little bit like Miss Daisy, I think. <laughs> it was in the wet mate we were lucky we didn't roll it it was close I'll tell you it was close at times a couple of times yeah, yeah, yeah. alright thanks mate for coming in alright I'll speak soon Hop. now let's go to Beach Banner okay, this week in the Beach Shack we've got Wally how are you mate yeah good thanks Hop. how are you good mate now Everyone knows of you being a swimmer and a lifeguard, but there's another hidden talent that not a lot of people know about, and you're starting to do that now, and that's drawing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, my art in particular, my drawing, something I've always always loved to do. I mean, I've always done it at school, you know. I'm sure there's a lot of kids out there that do that too. But, yeah, as you get older and you get a job and all of that, you, you sort of don't have time for that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, I think COVID's been a bit of a blessing in disguise it's given me a bit more time to concentrate on other things and yeah I'm sort of getting back into my art a lot more these days which is is nice now how did that you said you did that when you were younger when did you know you had a bit of a talent and did you have any type of like lessons in that to to get your uh, art and drawings a bit better no I never had any lessons to be honest it was my, my dad's actually quite a good drawer and if you look at how he draws and my style of drawing they're actually quite similar so I think I've just inherited it but I, I kind of knew I could draw when I was at school just comparing my my drawings of cars and whatnot compared to my mates and stuff <laughs> they look quite different so from an early age I kind of realized that I was all right at it so yeah I've just kept going with it Mate, uh, tell us a bit about like what type of drawings do you do, and and also, you know, where can people have a look? Because I know you're starting to put it out there a bit now with uh, on your yeah. Instagram. Yeah, for sure. So at the moment, I'm just doing a lot of digital art, so I'm keeping it quite beachy, quite relaxed, kind of you know, light-hearted, keep it fun, uh, nothing too serious. It's just nice images to look at, whether they got to do with an event that's going on at the time or just something that's going on in the community. It's yeah, it's just. Just laid back art. It's, not, it's nothing too serious about it. You can check me out on my Instagram. It's Wallace the Gromit. Uh, yeah, I'm actually in the process at the moment of building a, a little website. So I can't wait for that to get uh, get up and running and people can have a look at it, all my work there. So, yeah. Yeah, mate. I mean, there's some good work there. And um, 
I think it'll uh, get a bit of momentum and people will start, uh, you know, buying it once you start getting it out there a bit more. And I think it's uh, really uh, good what you're doing. And it's another hobby that you can do and, and keep an interest outside of, you know, the swimming and the lifeguarding. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the main thing is I, I really enjoy it. So it's not it's not hard for me to set a bit of time aside and, and get into it. So yeah, I'm, I'm really loving it. So where do you get your ideas from to draw? It's not an easy thing, to be honest. Uh, like, especially full-time work and yeah, you have your days off and you've got to try and get in the zone of what you're creating and whatever. But uh, yeah, they're just things that come to me when I'm down at the beach and or just doing things in general, just in life, just I come up with things and I try, not, I try to write things down as I come up with them and whatnot and keep them in the back of my mind. And then when I get that time to have a bit of, let out that bit of creativity, I sort of, yeah, try and get it all done in that in that little slot that I get. At what time frame does it take to do a drawing? Does it depend on the day, the mindset you're in at the time? Yeah, it has a bit to do with that. I mean, uh, if, if you're not in the zone, it, you can be, you, can, you wouldn't get anything done over the whole day I mean and then you have other days where you, you get a couple of drawings done in the whole day so I mean it's it's hard to say how long one will take so I mean yeah it actually has a lot to do with yeah what what frame of mind you're in it to be honest yeah you can have all different distractions going on and yeah you don't get anything done so yeah it's just being in that right frame of mind I'd say is probably the most important thing have you had a time where you've got halfway through or a bit further and you go oh, I don't like it and screw it all up and throw yeah. it away or yeah, plenty, plenty of them. I mean, to be honest, there's not too many of my drawings that aren't third editions of what I originally started with. You know, like I, I'll draw something and I'll look at it for a while and I'll go, that's not at all what I had in mind. So start again, get it done again, and then then you've sort of come to a, a position where you go, oh, that's all right. I actually don't mind that. That's what I had in mind. And then you might go over it again, and then you've actually really got exactly what you had in mind so it's it's very rarely straight off the, the top of your head it comes out and looks amazing so yeah it takes a bit of work and takes a bit of time to to perfect it to where you want it to get to i've interviewed musicians and they say the similar thing with writing music and, and creating music so it sounds like it's very similar you know the, the drawings and art to you know what they do in, as, as musicians yeah for sure i mean yeah i suppose it would be like that with any form of art i mean it's i mean you'd be very lucky to be able to do it off i mean there's a lot of artists out there that are very talented and they just they do it first go and i mean i don't think i'm one of those guys i take a bit of time to to perfect it but um i'm also a bit of a perfectionist to be honest but <laughs> I, I take a bit of time with my stuff so yeah I, I yeah i can definitely see how a musician would would absolutely yeah take a few goes and well mate you know some of the lifeguards of uh they they sort of like looking at themselves a bit. Has anyone come to you and said, "Can you draw me? Uh, can you draw? A, can you draw a lifeguard?" Yeah, I've actually had to do a job recently for uh, Whippet. He, he, he's doing his, his, his English Channel swim, and he needed a t-shirt for the for the event that he's doing. Uh, and I came back to him a couple of times with a, a picture of him on his on a t-shirt, and he had a few requests every time I went back to take a few kilos <laughs> kilos off around the head, around the chin, you know. But uh, yeah. <laughs> That's all good. I don't actually get a too, get too many requests from the guys that work to draw them, which is a bit of a surprise. To, to be honest, there's a couple down there that don't mind the old reflection in the in the mirror at Bronny. Yeah, there be a, there's a few around, mate. There's a few around. Yeah, <laughs> we love it. Well, mate, Wally, it's always great, mate, chatting to you, having you in the beach shack, and uh, 
we'll uh, do it all again very soon. Absolutely. Good to be here, Hop. Thanks, mate. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. Okay, this week's letter in the mailbag has come in from Glenn, and he is from Adelaide in South Australia. I watched our Bondi Rescue, and I noticed that sometimes guys wear hats and caps. Sometimes they don't. Is it a regulation that you need to wear a cap when you're working? Well, mate, it's uh, a regulation that it's advised to wear some sort of a, a cap or a hat. Uh, also, we've got the long sleeve shirts. Uh, we're quite uh, sun protected with all our uniforms. So with the sunnies, uh, also the, the shorts, it's all UV rated. Now, it's not compulsory. Obviously, we're in and out in the water all the time, but, mate, it's uh, advised. And most of the guys wear a lot of uh, sunscreen and also they uh, put the hat on and the shirt. Mate, thanks for your uh, letter and keep them coming because uh, we always love reading them out. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.